Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross. For 80 years, Capital Blue Cross has offered products that provide peace of mind and promote good health. Focused on creating a healthier future for our communities through innovations like its Capital Blue Health and Wellness Centers that provide in-person service and inspire healthy living. Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross. Live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by UPMC Pinnacle, committed to reducing hospital-acquired infections and readmission rates. More information on UPMC Pinnacle's achievements in patient safety can be found at upmcpinnacle.com quality. Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Many incoming freshmen look forward to pledging a fraternity or sorority as part of their college experience. In best cases, there's camaraderie, lifelong friendships, and community involvement. But in some Greek organizations, initiation includes hazing and alcohol abuse. The death of Penn State student Timothy Piazza earlier this year demonstrated the worst behavior some of these organizations operate with. The 19-year-old had endured hazing and extreme alcohol consumption before falling down a stairwell and dying from the head injury. The brothers of the Beta Theta Pi didn't call for help until hours later and plotted the cover-up while Piazza lay dying in his fraternity house. A report issued last week by a grand jury investigating Penn State's role in Piazza's death found egregious neglect on the part of the university in keeping Greek organizations in line. We're going to be hearing from both sides of this issue in just a few minutes, but joining us on the line first is Lisa Wade, an associate professor of sociology at Occidental College. Wade authored an opinion piece for Time magazine earlier this year calling for the abolition of social fraternities and sororities. Professor Wade, welcome to the program. Thank you for talking about this important issue. If you have a question or a comment about fraternities, sororities, Greek life, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at WITF. Uh, Professor Wade, you write in that Time Magazine opinion piece, abolition is the only answer. All social fraternities alongside the sorority life that they exploit must go. They must go permanently and forever at Penn State and everywhere else. Reform is simply not possible. Why do you feel that's the only option? Well, I came to that conclusion after doing research on the history of fraternities in particular. And the fact about fraternities is that they were, they began as organizations that were supposed to be uh, somewhat dangerous, partying to the point of perilous, um, and defiant of any sort of adult authority over their activities. And so it, being, being somewhat irresponsible, careless uh, with, with their members' lives is actually sort of baked into what a fraternity is. And also, any effort to, to change that is going to, number one, be resisted, because they all, another thing that's baked into what they are is resistant to authority. It's going to be resisted, and it's going to be resisted in particular, because once we make fraternities uh, thoughtful and careful, they, they simply won't be what they are anymore. So there's, there's simply no way for them to persist the way they are. I, I did, in that Time Magazine piece, you did uh, spend a lot of time on history, and uh, there there's a good history lesson in there about uh, how fraternities and sororities were, were formed, but fraternities in particular. Uh, you mentioned that history that they were formed by a lot of uh, rich kids, students on campus, to kind of uh, segregate themselves from middle-class students, right? Yeah, they come actually out of about 100 years of riots on college campuses. This is kind of a, a forgotten history of higher education, where the original students in America, colonial America, were middle-class men who wanted to become ministers. So they were rather serious, pious young men. Um, but when rich young men start arriving on college campuses, they find the sort of the serious studying and the control by authority members on college campuses to be um, unsa unsavory. They, they don't appreciate subordination to authority or boredom. And for that matter, no, nor do they particularly like the religious nature of, of college at the time. And so this, this, this starts off about 100 years of riots on college campuses where the elite students are resisting the authority, the boredom. And um, 
that's the that's the sort of fire that forges fraternities, and they eventually um, find this organizational way of carving out a space for themselves in higher education that is resistant to everything it stands for at the time. But a lot has changed in 150, 200 years. Uh, as you write about the history, you say that this was mostly white, uh, mostly upper class or uh, well-to-do students. Today, there are a lot of uh, minority uh, fraternities and sororities. Uh, and, it, you know, there's for the most part, as far as we know, uh, there are not uh, any kind of rules or regulations against uh, uh, certain type of students, uh, even you know racial, ethnic backgrounds, joining uh, those fraternities. So hasn't things changed? Haven't things changed over the years? Well, it's a really good question. So um, the, tra- the original social fraternities, the traditionally white, um, rich, uh, all-male fraternities, they they kind of became they were so exclusive, but they also had so much power that uh, the groups that were excluded from those those organizations uh, decided to sort of model themselves after what they saw as as the kind of organization on college campuses that enabled students to gain some power. So what's really interesting about the gay fraternities, the sororities, the, the multicultural um, fraternities and sororities is that they modeled themselves after fraternities specifically because they were excluded and still, um, to some degree, are. Uh, so, yes, things have changed, but, it, but, the, but the, the rising of these alternative types of fraternities and sororities speaks specifically to the, the same old exclusion that we saw in those early fraternities. Many would say, and I'm sure our guests coming up a little bit later in the program, would say that social Greek organizations offer camaraderie, support for students, they provide community and campus services, and that, uh, you know, they make for lifelong uh, friendships. Are they wrong? No, um, they're not wrong. But I also believe that there's nothing specifically special about a fraternity or sorority that is the only way we can deliver these necessary things. And in fact, what we're doing on many college campuses today is kind of outsourcing a really important thing that should be happening um, on college campuses that should be produced by staff and administration and instead counting on these other organizations to, to provide what really colleges should be doing themselves. So there are good things that come out of fraternities and sororities, uh, but there's no, there's no need to keep them around specifically for that reason, especially given all of the many, many ways in which they are exclusive and dangerous. Well, okay, let's uh, push back on that just. Uh, I want to push back on that just a little bit because there may be people who would say, okay, what you're describing is there are a few bad apples out there for every, you know, uh, the death, the tragic death of Timothy Piazza at uh, Penn State, and there have been some other high-profile cases on campuses across the, the country in recent months. There are hundreds of other students who are involved in this activity that it doesn't go that far and they have a positive experience out of it. Yes, and I'm, I'm happy for students that are having positive experiences, and I certainly wouldn't um, argue with them that that's true. I think the problem is that it's really, really difficult to know which of these fraternities and sororities are going to create crises to produce um, deaths of students ahead of time. And, and in, their, in particular, they're very, very good at kind of hiding the ways in which they are resistant to being careful, resistant to reform. And so given the nature of the institution, which is to be somewhat a somewhat perilous place to find partying in, in dangerous ways to be fun and exciting and hilarious, I think there's, there's just simply no argument left that they aren't dangerous institutions across the board. And so insofar as they this is going to continue to be a problem. It seems to me that the best thing to do is to simply try to phase out this very, um, I, think an, I think an experiment in higher education that has proven to be um, 
harmful. If social Greek organizations were abolished, uh, wouldn't there be students to find other ways to band together in groups, uh, continue this behavior? I mean, we know that uh, drinking, for example, is rampant on college campuses, whether someone is associated with a fraternity, sorority or not, that there are students that uh, are indulging way, way too much. Isn't there a tribal instinct to find ways to click up? Well, uh, one way in which colleges try to kind of offer the fraternity sorority type experience to young people is to create, uh, for the colleges themselves, to create what they call living and learning communities. So they make sure that first-year students get an opportunity to kind of live together in the same residence hall, attend a lot of the same classes, and, and forge friendships and the kind of support that we see in fraternities and sororities in that way. So one thing to do is for the institution to step in and stop outsourcing this job to fraternities and sororities. But the question of the under, quote-unquote underground fraternity and sorority that sort of pops up after the formal uh, recognized institution is, is told that it must disband, that is a real problem. And, and I think that we need to, as we think about how to phase out fraternities and sororities, we need to be really thoughtful about how to address all the different kinds of unintended consequences that we would see. So I'm certainly not saying that this is not a problem, but I also think that the challenges with, with, with eliminating Greek life shouldn't, shouldn't be um, the end of our conversation. We should, we should be thinking about how to manage those challenges instead of finding them simply impossible to manage. Isn't drinking the real problem? I and mean, if you had to point to one thing that even if there were fraternities and sororities or there weren't, that drinking is what causes a lot of this misbehavior? Drinking is a lot of what causes the misbehavior, but there's also a lot of cultural stuff going on underneath the drinking. So why is it, for example, that, that students in these organizations, the students in higher education in general, find it desirable to drink to this point where, where it becomes dangerous to be drinking? And a lot of what under, undergirds that idea is this notion that um, men on college campuses uh, should be able to be partying to the point of perilousness, that it's somehow part of one's masculinity to, um, to be drinking at these extreme levels. And so, uh, so, you know, yes, drinking is a problem, and we need to address that across the college campuses for sure, but it is actually fraternity men who historically introduced the idea of drinking and partying to college campuses, and it's this fraternity men who continue to glamorize the idea of men drinking to excess and it's fraternity men who continue to, on many college campuses, per, per make persistent this idea that the right way to do college is to drink to excess. So I believe, well, I, we know that they introduced this idea to higher education, and it seems clear that they also um, are consistently reproducing this idea. So I think that if we eliminated the kind of fraternity life that we see on TV and we see on college campuses with the massive parties and the drinking to excess, then the idea that that's the right way, quote-unquote, to do college would also start to fade a bit. One of the issues that society, universities, and colleges are much more aware of today, uh, it hasn't stopped it from happening, maybe it's reduced it somewhat, but that is sexual assault. And you wrote about that uh, in your book, American Hookup, The New Culture of Sex on Campus. Uh, you traveled to many campuses while researching for, for the book. What did you learn from students about Greek culture on campus when it comes to sexual assault? Well, we know that fraternity men are second only to certain kinds of athletes in the likelihood of them participating in sexual assault, being perpetrators of sexual assault. And we know that fraternity houses are one of the uh, main places in which, uh, in which sexual assault occurs, so that fraternity spaces are quite dangerous spaces for women. And we know that women that spend time around fraternity men, particularly at the parties, uh, are more likely than other women to be sexually assaulted. So this is one of the ways in which fraternities create a dangerous space for many college students. And it's not just the students who are going to be assaulted, who are both men and women on these campuses, but it's also creating an environment where men are at risk of assaulting. So we're creating an environment in which it's cool to be not quite in control of your own decisions, where you're drinking to the point of having very bad judgment. And then we're encouraging young people to 
aggressively try to extract sex from each other. And so it creates an environment that is, that is, that is conducive to sexual assault. And so I think we need to be thinking about fraternity houses as dangerous for people in the sense that they may be assaulted, or they're more likely to be assaulted there than elsewhere, but also that we need to be worried about our young men going into these organizations trying to play this fraternity game. Let's go to, we have a phone call here from Bill in Lancaster. Bill, you're on the air. Good morning, Scott. Hi, Bill. First of all, let me say that uh, in one area, I do agree with your uh, guest today that fraternities and sororities have been going way overboard in a lot of things, and they need to have controls exercised on them, just like everything. But... I'm sorry, she sounds like a typical goody two-shoes that doesn't agree with things, so let's just ban it. Everything she says sounds ba- harkens back to the 18th Amendment, let's just ban drinking, oh, because it's bad. And a lot of what goes on in college that has gone on for years is that the students have no parental exercise of control for the first time in their life, and they don't know how to react that because they haven't been properly brought up by a lot of their parents to understand what the mores of social uh, 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 actions are and what they should be doing. Hey, Bill, thank you very much for your call. Lisa, what do you think of that? (laughs) You goody (laughs) two-shoes? Probably in some ways. Um, You know, I I try to imagine um, a conversation between a, a, a freshman and the dean of students at a college in 2017 um, in a world in which there had never been fraternities or sororities. Um, and so this young freshman comes, comes to the dean, and he says, okay, I have an idea. <laughs> I'm going to start a club, and it's going to be mostly rich white guys, um, and we're not going to allow women in at all. They're just gonna, not going to be allowed. And it's, we're going to get a house, and it's going to be a, one the most dangerous space on all of campus and in this space we're disproportionately going to see uh, binge drinking sexual assault um, academic dishonesty um, and hazing and fights and DUIs and so it's going to be it's going to be this place that causes you a lot of problems um, and is really dangerous for your students um, and, and it's only going to be organized and controlled by um, Boys like me and, and and adult men who actually like kind of like what we're doing. So, but, so what but, do you think? But, like, but, but you Lisa, think this me, is a good idea. But Lisa, let me interrupt for just a second. I mean, is it fair to portray all Greek organizations that way? I mean, yes, there are a, a lot of, of examples of what you just listed. But is it fair to paint them all that way? No, but I think that when we look at what they offer and what they cost. I think if we really were honest about that balance sheet, um, then we would. We, and, and if we could start fresh with like sort of a fresh mind and imagination, we would not choose to have these organizations on campuses because even the best fraternities and sororities are ones that encourage students to isolate themselves in cliques, create hierarchy and status dynamics that make some people feel excluded and left out. So. Even the best fraternities and sororities are still based on this idea that we should be trying to uh, climb up a hierarchy and push other students below us and feel good about ourselves because we're exclusive. And I think in America today, I mean, the original, when fraternities were originally formed, the college presidents at the time thought they were un-American and undemocratic because they encouraged this kind of exclusivity and hierarchy. And I think that's actually... You know, if you boil it down to to, the, to what they really are all about, I, I'm not sure that that's really the, the values that we want to be inculcating in young people today. Lisa Wade is an associate professor of sociology at Occidental College. I want to thank you for getting up early. Uh, you're on the West Coast, correct? I am in New Orleans. Oh, you're in New Orleans. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you very much for being with us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Smart Talk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. 
Smart Talk is also supported by the team of cardiologists, surgeons, nurses, physicians assistants, and rehabilitation specialists from Pinnacle Health Cardiovascular Institute, part of UPMC Pinnacle, delivering a broad range of traditional and highly specialized procedures. During this portion of the program, we're discussing fraternities and sororities on campus. Joining us now in studio are Brian Hazlitt, Vice President of Student Affairs, and Kyle Miller, Coordinator of the Center for Student Involvement, both from Millersville University. Gentlemen, welcome to the program. Thank you for having us. Thank you. And we will take some more phone calls in just a few minutes. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page on Twitter. We are at Smart Talk WITF. Again, that phone number, 1-800-729-7532. Now, you two gentlemen have been listening intently to uh, what Lisa Wade had to say and her uh, advocate. Uh, she's an advocate for abolishing Greek organizations altogether because she listed all the bad behaviors and just said it's, it's not worth it. Your reaction to what she had to say? Well, I think, uh, you know, for us to, 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 to abolish all Greek organizations would be a very, very dramatic step to take for any institution. I think they do add value to the institution, but, you know, it's also up to the institution to make sure that we're educating and promoting a, a healthy environment for those organizations on our campus as well. What value to the campus? Um, I think that for us, the value is all the, the, the things outside of the organization that they do, the community service the uh, efforts that they make to feel other student organizations are engaged on campus. Um, they play a key role. Uh, they definitely do on our on our particular campus at Millersville. I'm, I'm curious when you say community service. I mean, uh, you know, I can remember bake sales and participating in parades, raising money for things like that. But what kind of community services are you talking about, Kyle? So our students have a tendency to get very engaged in our community. Um, they Last year, they did over 6,000 hours of community service, um, ranging from volunteering with Feeding America to do food drives, uh, donating that to local entities, adopt a highway throughout the Lancaster region, um, raising money and awareness for St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital. Um, they run the gamut. Uh, they're active participants in our campus Relay for Life. Um, and then they also have a partnership with the regional Make-A-Wish Foundations, the Make-A-Wish Foundation of Philadelphia, Delaware, and the Susquehanna Valley um, during our Greek Week, where they actually raise money and awareness for the Make-A-Wish Foundation. Greek Week, is that when uh, pledging is going on? Uh, no, it is an event at the end of the spring. Oh, it's an event? Okay, yep. all right. A lot of comp healthy competition and um, awareness around causes and raising money and philanthropy. But. You you cannot deny that uh, there have been a number of tragedies on campus. The the Timothy Piazza death at Penn State has seemed to, it has, it has really brought a lot of attention to this issue. And there have been many, many across this country incidents where there have been bad behaviors. I mean, bad behavior when you're talking about someone dying, falling down the stairs, mm -hmm. and the fraternity brothers don't call 911 for 12 hours. That's more than bad behavior. It may be voluntary manslaughter, if depending on what the courts uh, have to say. So how do you respond to that? I mean, her whole argument is that this is going on, this is so widespread that the only way to eliminate it would be to eliminate Greek life on campus. Yeah, I mean, the national events that are occurring around that are, are, are unfortunate tragedies. I mean, I just want to say that out, out front. But really for us, you know, it, taking the Greek organizations out of the equation, when you look at our incoming students every year, we're doing a tremendous amount of, of programming around, uh, you know, alcohol awareness, uh, events that are going to occur on the campus over the semester. How are you going to... You know, put yourself in a, in a good place when you're in those certain circumstances. How are others going to come to your aid if that's something that's needed? So it really starts at the point of entry, taking Greek organizations out of the equation, because students, um, unfortunately, are going to be having opportunities throughout their freshman year where they may be putting themselves in a, in a position that they need to um, to reevaluate where they are in that in that particular setting. So we at Millersville do a tremendous amount of work through the point of Entry over the summer, we're communicating with students about uh, safe behaviors, leading right through orientation right into the beginning of the semester. It's an ongoing process that starts freshman year and ends when they're, they're walking across that stage at graduation. But Penn State did all those things, too. 
you're not here to mm-hmm. defend what Penn State did or what they didn't. But Millersville probably isn't unique in what you do mm-hmm. uh, with that. But it did not stop Timothy Piazza from, from dying. Correct. I mean, that's it's like I said before, it's extremely unfortunate that it, it happened. Um, for us, we can be, you know, really overly aggressive with the programming that we're doing. Uh, but sometimes you can't stop some of those things from occurring. But that doesn't mean that it's tied to a Greek organization. Uh, you know, there's there's issues that are occurring for students across the country that are putting themselves in, in positions that can cause an unfortunate situation to occur. So it's, it's a challenge. Um, I'm not going to, not, to deny that, but it's something that we're constantly working on trying to improve. And that even to the p- position that Kyle serves at our campus, you know, we've taken the resources to dedicate a person specifically to work with our Greek organizations because we know how critically important it is that they're making sure that they're educated throughout that process. So, Kyle, you're the coordinator for the of the Center for Student Involvement at Millersville. Correct. Is uh, there occasion for you to go to a fraternity and say, you guys are drinking too much, you're partying too much, you're not following the rules? And if you do, I'm curious what the reaction is to you. So I think one of the best things that that my office at Millersville and what we as a division at Millersville have done is we've created a space where open and honest dialogue can happen. Uh, So we're able to have some difficult conversations at time to talk about um, very sensitive issues such as an organization or an individual's alcohol use um, and how we can work with them to understand, okay, are we making really good or how are we making good choices or how are we making decisions surrounding safe alcohol consumption? Um, And then, as Brian mentioned before, at Millersville, we have taken a very proactive approach um, to educating students from prior to entry into the institution, during orientation, during their first year in college. And then we've also continued those educational efforts when they join a fraternity or sorority through programming specific to new members of organizations and then also chapter-wide programming that we work with them on throughout the year. Um, So I think one of the best things that we've done is we've really created that that atmosphere where students can have those honest, open conversations. uh, We haven't taken it. You know, I think lots of times you think that it's a top-down approach. And really, we've taken a different approach on our campus is that we've really worked – we've established a program where we have peer educators – and our peer educators are, are individuals that are students that are involved in Greek organizations, fraternities, sororities, um, athletics, uh, across the board. And they work with our students to do things that make sure that they're, that they're providing education to them. But also it's someone that they can relate to and it provides that safe space to have those conversations as well. Kyle, you said safe drinking. Uh, the drinking age in Pennsylvania and across the country is 21. Mm-hmm. Most college students are under the age of mm-hmm. 21. Does safe drinking and rules include underage drinking? Absolutely. Um, so our policies, our code of conduct, the law, uh, require someone to consume alcohol legally. They're over the age of 20. They have to be over the age of 21 to consume alcohol. Um, that's plain and simple. Um, almost all of our students, or not all of our students, a large portion of our traditional students are turning 21 when they're in college. Um, social Probably junior year for the most part. Most yeah. likely. Yeah. Um, those social organizations still have that social entity, whether they're having friends over at a house, whether they're going out to a bar. Um, being able to give students those skills so that they can make more responsible choices about alcohol is one of the things that our programs work best. So those are skills that they can not only use while they're in college, within their fraternity and sorority, within their friend groups, within their families, but also throughout their life. We're going to take phone calls here in just a moment. Hazing and initiations into these organizations seem to be where there is the most danger. And if someone is a first-year student and they're pledging to a fraternity, number one, that is underage drinking, but there appears to be a lot of alcohol, a lot of hazing going on into these organizations. What is Millersville and what are other universities doing to try to alleviate that danger that... I mean, again, the death of Timothy, Timothy Piazza is uh, an unusual situation, but there are many, many cases where uh, those pledging have been humiliated or injured, something like that. What's the university's policy? How do you keep it from happening? So I think to begin um, with that, we really does start with the joining process. So our policies, our advising model really focuses on the fact that we do not allow alcohol in the joining process. Um, that is a Millersville policy. That is 
the policy of our the national organizations that we host on our campus. Um, so we do not allow alcohol in the joining process. Now that extends from recruitment functions to new member education functions. Um, we work with them on how are they developing successful recruitment and new member programs um, to be able to create safe environments where people can ask the questions that they have about those organizations, learn about what they do, um, learn about the members that are there. Um, and then we work with them on, from a training and development standpoint to prevent alcohol being involved in that joining process. Then extending that over to hazing is we make very clear, obviously, that to new members that they have a right to not be hazed. It is a crime in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. It is a violation of our student code of conduct. Um, and then it goes back to that training and development point with our chapters, is that we're working with them to create recruitment and new member programs that are that do not focus on alcohol, that do not involve hazing, that are bringing out the values that those organizations stand for and that they live by. So if uh, a fraternity or members of a fraternity violated that policy of hazing and, and drinking, what would happen to them? Would those students be expelled? Would uh, there be, uh, you know, would the fraternity be eliminated or just what? So we would we would approach that from a case-by-case -case basis, but mm -hmm. any any violation of our student code of conduct would be referred to our Office of Judicial Affairs, which I'm going to allow Brian to speak Right, and, and I think, the, you know, our student code of conduct, one of the things that a lot of students don't realize maybe initially when they come is that that carries along the path for all four years during their time on the campus or even during the summer months when they're home. So if we have a student that violates that code, say they're you know, home over the summer and they have a, an underage drinking violation or something like that, uh, if we're made aware of it, then we have those students go through the judicial process. So to the larger question that you asked, I mean, if an organization was was problematic and we were seeing patterns there, we would very aggressively approach that and, and we would look at the organization and look and see, um, are they violating our code? And, and we've, you know, if we have to take that dramatic step to put the organization on probation or, or move even more dramatically to eliminate it, we would take those steps to make sure that we're providing that safe environment for our students. Let's take some phone calls. Carly is in Wellsville. Carly, you're on the air. Hi, guys. Good morning. Um, I'm a recent graduate of Penn State. I graduated in 2016, and um, I had a lot of experience with the fraternities because, um, you know, I was involved with Fawn, which is, I don't know if you guys know what that yes. is, but that yes. is a 46-hour mm -hmm. dance marathon where... Um, Thon organizations and fraternities uh, actually take part in you know, fundraising to raise money for the Four Diamonds, um, which is part of Penn State Hershey. And every year we raise between you know ten and fourteen million dollars a year. And you know, being a Penn Stater, you know you hear the horror stories of the frats and the sororities. Um, however, um, I was at you know I was there for four years, and I went to a lot of parties where. You know, you only got a wristband if you were uh, 21 or older, and if you had a wristband, you were able to drink. And, you know, uh, you go with a bunch of groups, and a lot of our professors and our teachers would tell us, you know, go in groups and, you know, always be safe. And it's okay to call the cops if you're, you know, underage drinking because they, want, they care more about getting you home and giving you a citation. And I think that's really um, what it goes about, you know, saying with the – you know, the teachers and the professors. And um, last year I was lucky enough to um, work at one of the Commonwealth campuses. And I got close with the students, and I knew when all the parties were. And I always said, you know, I know what you're doing. I'm not dumb. Like, I was also there, you know, just last year. If you need me, call me. I'm not going to call your parents. I'm not going to try to get you in trouble. Like, I'm worried about getting you safe. And I think it's all about the relationship status between, you know, teacher and educator um, with the students that would really – you know, help engage in, you know, safety and precautions and stuff like that. All right. Thank you very much for your call, Carly. It sounds what she's saying is everyone has to look out for uh, everyone else. Brett is in effort. Brett, you're on the air. Oh, thank you. Thank you. My call, uh, more the first uh, person you had on, uh, she really, like, scared me. Uh, you know, demanding, you know, telling everybody else what to do, what not to do. Um, I think she wanted a participation trophy, everybody to be able to do everything they like. Um, but as far as fraternities go, I don't see what the big deal is. Um, some college kid gets drunk and dies. The news makes a big thing of it. Some kid going to tech school or some kid in the Army uh, gets drunk and dies. Nobody even yawns. Um, what makes college kids so special? I mean, 
They're supposed to be the brightest and smartest, yet they flunk Life 101. They do something stupid. I mean, there's no cure for stupid. And All right, thank you very much for your call, Brett. But I think, to your point, uh, making those comparisons, yeah, when he says some college kid gets drunk and, and dies, well, it's not often that uh, someone has a, a, an alcohol, a blood alcohol content level four times the legal limit, falls downstairs several times, uh, and no one calls 911 when he's unconscious and don't, doesn't call 911 for 12 hours. Those are the kind of things that uh, make it different than, than other things. I mean, uh, you see someone unconscious on the street, you're going to call 911, but yet here's someone supposed to be a friend that you wait for those hours. Again, tragic situation. Heath is in New Cumberland. Heath, you're on the air. Hi, Scott. Thanks Hi. for taking my call. Yes, you're welcome. Um, the only thing I would like to say about that is that the priorities do do a lot of good in the public as far as their uh, just empathy for other people and life skills. And what I would like to do is just say that uh, everybody just stay on their own side of the street and worry about your own business because basically that's who is the most important person in your life, yourself. All right, thank you very much for your call. But, you know, as I think our first caller mentioned, you do have to look out for one another, especially uh, you know, one of the reasons you're belonging to this organization is for camaraderie, friendship, and all those things. That uh, And, again, in some of these tragedies, what's happened is everyone has looked out for themselves and their own protection rather than trying to help someone when they were in danger. Right. I mean, well, I think, you know, for Millersville's campus specifically is that, you know, my experience, and I've worked at a few campuses now, is that, you know, our students, more so than any other time that I've experienced, care for each other. Uh, they reach out and help each other. And I think that that can go a long way. And I think that's part of our culture. And that's something that we embrace. And it ultimately carries over to, to our, you know, our clubs, our organizations. You know, we have a, a fairly robust um uh, you know, club sport program that, once again, that's another group of students that have uh, a common niche that they're trying to, to form themselves around. But I really feel like the campus itself, and that's not to say that you can't have those outliers where something's going to occur, but I think for us specifically at Millersville, we do we do make sure that our students know that, A, um, that it's a caring environment, but, B, if they see someone that needs help, you know, reach out and help them and uh, and, and really take those steps to make sure that they're they're okay. Let's take one more call from Nicole and Hershey. Nicole, you're on the air. Hello. Hi. Um, I'm a Dickinson College alum. Um, I was a member of the Delta News sorority. And a couple years ago, we as a sorority had a lot of issues with girls drinking, doing things that were just inappropriate. And the administration stepped up and said, look, either you guys fix what's going on or we're going to you know, take you off campus. And what happened was alumni started getting involved with campus again and talking to the girls because if we all remember when we're 18, 19, 20, you don't make the best choices. So by having alumni involved and being able to come and help the girls see that there are other choices, that there are other things that they could make, we got back to the root of what our sorority was founded on, which was inclusion and having a place for everyone and standing up for women's rights and saying no to sexual assault and those things. And now the sorority on campus is known for being a place of inclusion, for being a place where women's rights are stood up for, where we don't just go and drink and act like crazy people to the point that actually our alumni board won well, one of the most prestigious alumni um, awards that you could get last year. Mm -hmm. So there is an opportunity for change and for growth and development. Um, it's very frustrating to hear that there can't be anything with Greek life. Greek life has an opportunity. They can set the bar for what behavior is supposed to be for men and women. 
And if we take that opportunity as alumni and as administration and as students to work together, the the opportunities are limitless for what we can achieve together. Hey, Nicole, Nicole, thank you very much for your call. General, I'm sure you, you like hearing something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, final question. There has been a lot of attention on some of these tragedies across the country, some of these incidents. Uh, what reforms, if any, will come out of this? So I think a lot of this is going to be taking a look at the root of the problem, which is where campus and organizational culture might be, where college culture might be. Um, and, and I think the, the most practical way to move reform and and one of the approaches that at Millersville we have we have constantly and continuously been working on is engaging students in that culture change in engaging them in a process of what are they looking to get out of this experience what do they what do they believe about this experience what do their values tell them about how they should take on those leadership roles and then how they can actually get some of those experiences and use that as a way to kind of build and grow themselves. So I think it, it really does start with how are we looking at values-based leadership? But with that said, I said it's a final question, I lied one more. <laughs> uh, with that said, I mean, we've had a, call, a few callers suggest this is the first time for many young people to be away from their parents, to be away from home. And as I said earlier, and it's no secret, that there's too much drinking uh, in uh, involving students, whether they're of age or underage, on campus, off, off campus, how do you change those things? I mean, you can't change that uh, young people are away from home for the first time, but uh, many of them being exposed to having that kind of freedom that they can drink a beer or, or you know, something even stronger than that. How do you change that? Well, changing a culture doesn't happen overnight. So, it, you know, typically it takes takes time. Uh, it takes a commitment, and I think that's what we're about. I mean, that's what we're trying to do is is make that commitment to our students. Uh, ultimately, their you know our ultimate goal is to see them be successful, um, be change agents, and ultimately cross that stage and be you know really robust alums that want to give back to their communities and, and to the institution. So it does start with education. I know that's a it can sound cliche that you say it starts with education, but it really does. Um, and, and, you know, you can't do enough of it. And I think that's what has changed on college campuses. I think back when I was in my undergrad and I was looking at fraternities, I was really – there really wasn't a, a high level of education going around, you know, those, those risky behaviors. And that has changed. Um, that is something that we're committed to. Uh, we're fortunate, too, on our campus we've taken an approach as well that we do not have Greek homes or Greek houses on our campus. Um, so we've kind of taken that that environment out of our equation. Uh, and we do embrace living learning communities. That's something that the earlier caller stated. We do do that. Um, so we're really trying to instill those those core values that align with our core values as an institution. Brian Hazlitt is the Vice President of Student Affairs and Kyle Miller, Coordinator of the Center for Student Involvement at Millersville University. Gentlemen, thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks for having us. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Penn State Health and Highmark finalized their partnership on Monday. The alliance opens the central Pennsylvania market to expansion for health care services. The companies have agreed to invest $1 billion in health services, and the partnership ratchets up the rivalry between Highmark and UPMC Pinnacle for mid-state market share. If rivalry is the right word, but at least uh, there appears to be more competition in in the marketplace. Joining us in the studio is Brett Schultz, WITF's Transforming Health reporter. Brett, welcome to the program. Always a pleasure to be here, Scott. If you have a question or a comment, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. All right, so what's behind this merger between uh, Pinnacle, excuse me, well, that was the old one, and we'll talk about that one as <laughs> we well. Sure about uh, Highmark uh, Blue Shield and Penn State Health. Well, this particular alliance um, is, it's not a merger in the sense that they are becoming, you know, one corporation or anything like that. They're, they're partnering uh, in an effort to kind of create a health network in this part of the state. Um, so th it's an important distinction to make, I think, because we tend to just assume that uh, it's a merger. 
and there are different kind of uh, important distinctions that go along with yeah, that. Yeah, partnership and merger, big difference between those two words. But I think it's important to say that Highmark is, you know, Highmark is both an insurer and a company that owns some hospitals. Uh, and so anytime you have a company like that, UPMC also is a company that's an insurer and that owns hospitals. So th those companies oftentimes uh, are trying to set up um, preferred networks in the region so that they can they can try to get people to go to certain hospitals rather than other ones. And I think that uh, having Highmark paired up with Penn State Health means that they're going to really try to set up a strong network of preferred uh, providers where you may be insured with Highmark and you may also be wanting to go to hospitals hospitals that they have a strong affiliation with. The big question that many people listening to this will have is, okay, what's this mean for me? What does this mean if I want to be treated by a, a doctor or at uh, Penn State Hershey Medical Center or one of Highmark's, you know, if they're investing in these other facilities? What does it mean to me? Yeah, there's a lot to that. I think that uh, right now what we're seeing is that if you have Highmark insurance, you will still be able to go to uh, UPMC Pinnacle. And if you have UPMC insurance, they say that they're setting up um, some partnerships or contracts. Really, it's an insurance and provider contract with Penn State Health. So right now, everybody... Uh, is sort of saying, well, we're gonna we're gonna play nice. Uh, we're gonna give you choice. Uh, if you want to go to another provider, uh, we're gonna we're gonna make that happen for you. Uh, in terms of the Highmark uh, and uh, UPMC Pinnacle uh, contract, that's actually already been set up for the next seven years. So uh, that'll be an interesting one to watch. I think it's also important to watch to see if anything falls apart with the UPMC insurance for those who might have UPMC insurance and want to go to a Penn State uh, hospital or facility, because that's still, I believe, in the works. And if something falls apart there, that might be a signal that we're going to see some of the rivalry and rancor that happened in Pittsburgh. All right, let's talk about that, because uh, that was another another. Uh, topic that came up is immediately after this was announced earlier this week is that uh, there has been a bitter rivalry uh, and court cases and uh, you know restrictions on where someone can can be treated and that was the rivalry between UPMC and Highmark in western Pennsylvania in the Pittsburgh area What's to keep that from happening here in central Pennsylvania? Right. I'm just going to do a quick backstory on that. You know, UPMC and Highmark are both from Pittsburgh. And the yeah, short it's University of Pittsburgh Medical Center is what UPMC stands for. Right. And the short version of what happened, to my understanding, is that uh, when Highmark went to buy a hospital chain in Western PA that was UPMC's competitor, then UPMC basically said, well, we're going to consider you out of network now for our facilities. And that sparked a years-long feud where, I mean, I lived in Pittsburgh at the time. You would have thought that two rival uh, political candidates were running against each other. I right. mean, there it, were... it was. It was better. <laughs> it, it was. And, and I'm not sure, you know, what whether that was something that uh, that was ultimately good for either their brand or for, you know, the the healthcare consumers. So um, that's kind of the backstory to that. Right now we are not seeing too much evidence that that's going to repeat here in the mid-state. Um, there is definitely going to be competition, though. They're definitely both vying for the same, you know, the same customers. What is to keep that from happening here in central Pennsylvania, though? I mean, you say they promised to play nice. What does that mean? Yeah, well, the the contracts are probably a good sign because at the end of the day, what really matters for con uh, healthcare consumers is that their health insurance has a contract with a provider to give them in network coverage. So, if if they're not uh, encouraging people to go to their preferred networks by you know outpricing the uh, you know the other the other health uh, systems, then essentially it's it's pretty much you have that choice. Uh, now, one could make the argument that. This could actually drive prices down. And in fact, that's an argument that was made. Okay, that's my next question. Everyone's mm -hmm. wondering about price. What's this going to mean to the wallet or the pocketbook? Yeah, well, healthcare prices are going up, uh, regardless of mergers, and they have been going up for years. We know that. Um, and we can't necessarily say that that's because of mergers, but the prices are going up. 
I think it's important to distinguish between a merger where one hospital chain comes in and buys up all the other hospitals. You know, a few years ago, uh, Pinnacle and Penn State Health tried to do a merger like that. And regulators and a judge basically said you can't do it because it creates a monopoly that uh, would uh, not give people enough enough choice and it could you know cause you to jack up the prices. And uh, so that's one type of, of merger. In this situation, if you do have a lot of real competition between rival companies, then it could actually lead prices to go down. I've seen, I've read a number of studies that indicates that uh, prices tend to be lower in an area that has a lot of competing interests like that. <clears throat> Let's take a phone call from David in Lancaster. David, you're on the air. Yes. Um, had a, Penn State uh, recently dropped their hotmark insurance. I'm just curious how that squares with this new deal. Thank you very much for your call. Yeah, he'd have to provide a little bit more context for me to understand what he's referring to. What I what I think may be the case there, and the question I might have for a caller would be whether that was uh, insurance that's on the exchange. Because, and this is also something to watch for. Um, Highmark, those who use Highmark on the exchange recently got a letter, at least some of them got a letter from UPMC Pinnacle indicating that they're not going to be considered in-network at UPMC Pinnacle in 2018. And that's that does sign a little bit of alarm bells to me. I directly asked Highmark and UPMC about that, and the answer I got was that that was kind of a one-off. They disagreed about the pricing. They disagreed about that particular package. And I am inclined to kind of accept that for what it is for now because we know that the affordable character exchange plans have all kinds of additional complexities to them in no short part because the federal government is really actively trying to uh, undermine its existence in any way that it can. Brett Childers is WITF's Transforming Health reporter and uh, this is good news. I mean this is a new news I should say that uh, it come, came out this week's only two days old so there will be a lot more to digest and analyze Brett, I'm sure we'll have you on the program again to talk about that as well. So thanks for being with us today. Thank you. And I should mention that uh, WITF's Transforming Health Program, or project, I should say, takes a deeper look at the changing tide of health care. Check out WITF's Transforming Health from policy to personal choices. We're taking a comprehensive look at today's health system online at transforminghealth.org. A partnership of WITF, Yes, Penn State Health, and WellSpan Health. Uh, Coming up on tomorrow's program, we look at the case against gerrymandering in Pennsylvania, and we discuss new services being offered by libraries in the region. That's coming up on tomorrow's show. Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high-quality programming. Support comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a trusted resource in our communities. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by UPMC Pinnacle, committed to research that improves health, reduces recovery times, and brings new treatments and therapies to our area before they're available elsewhere. More information is at upmcpinnacle.com.